Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Hey folks, just a quick announcement before we get rolling with this episode. I just uploaded 26 unique training plans to my website. They range from 12-week base building plans all the way up to advanced 100-mile training plans. If you're looking for a bit more guidance with your training, please consider checking out my offerings at zachbitter.com. That's Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. Once on the site, click the link on the top titled Training Plans and see if anything fits your needs. I'm also looking to continue to add to this catalog, so do not hesitate to reach out with any suggestions. Thanks, everyone. All right, folks, welcome back to what will ultimately be episode four of a series of podcast episodes that we're calling The Dietitian's Dilemma. So uh, with this series, I'm joined again by uh, Michelle Hearn, uh, my co-host for this series, and our next guest, uh, Danny Hamilton. Uh, Danny, thanks for joining us for this, this episode of the series. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're, we're excited to, to have you here as well. And, and maybe for the listeners, uh, if you could just share a little bit about, about your background and kind of what your interest is, and we can, we can dive into some, some interesting topics along the lines of low carbohydrate and, and maybe some blood sugar control type stuff, which I think is something you're, you're a bit interested in these days. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my name is Danny Hamilton, and I am a nutritional therapy practitioner. And that's kind of a lot of words to say I'm a holistic nutritionist, and we help the body kind of find balance by adding in what it needs and taking away things that it doesn't need. And I found nutritional therapy because I myself was struggling my whole life with my health. I had, um, you know, just a lot of colds as a kid. I had many, many rounds of antibiotics from ear infections and strep throat and got my tonsils out, had terrible seasonal allergies, was on five prescription medications. I had inhalers for asthma. I had to get five allergy shots in the stomach every other day. And my immune system was garbage. I was getting chronic sinus infections. And then I finally found out what a real food diet was. So I took out processed food. I started a paleo diet and all those things went away. And I was like, oh my goodness, food is so powerful. And I really found so much healing and was just so impressed by how much our bodies can heal when we give it what it needs. So then I had a really stressful year and I, um, I started to develop a lot of 
hormonal issues. I, I lost my period. I had really bad cystic acne. I was like, I thought this was supposed to be going away, you know, not, not coming in the mid twenties. And then I had a lot of other hormonal issues, like feeling really fatigued and I would be really shaky some of the time. And I didn't know what it was. And finally I got diagnosed with PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I was trying everything I could to get rid of my PCOS, but could not make a dent in the symptoms. I was gaining weight. I couldn't lose weight no matter what I did. I was working out more than I ever had. And the weight, the scale wasn't budging. And I realized finally that I heard a podcast where they said that PCOS is the diabetes of the ovaries. And I like nearly fell over. I was like, what, what do you mean? Diabetes like this has to do with with my blood sugar, how is this possible? So I started looking into it and I realized that insulin resistance was really at the root of it. And I was having all these blood sugar symptoms that I didn't know were symptoms of blood sugar issues. And so now it's my mission to kind of get the word out there that, you know, blood sugar issues don't start with diabetes or pre-diabetes. They start developing years, if not decades before then. And so I love to help people sort of connect the dots and understand what their symptoms mean. And the great news is that all this blood sugar stuff is really reversible. And so I was able to reverse it, get rid of my PCOS. I have no blood sugar issues anymore and I feel better than I ever have. So yeah, that's my story. Thank, thanks for sharing, Danny. I think uh, let's jump into the blood sugar side of things right out the gate. I think this is an interesting topic and one that I've been, I guess, probably, I mean, I've been familiar with blood sugar, obviously, for quite some time, but like, <laughs> I guess the the details about it are always where it gets interesting. And, you know, now that they have uh, continuous glucose monitors, and I was fortunate enough to, oh, you can, nice. <laughs> for those yeah. of us watching the video, uh, Danny has a, a CGM on at the moment. And you may have actually just uh, answered my next question without saying anything. <laughs> and it was going to be like, how did you actually get tipped off by this in the first place? Was it like a CGM monitor that showed you that you were wildly out of range a lot of the times, or were you uh, just testing more frequently with like the finger prick setup? Like, how did you end up identifying that as kind of the root cause in the first place? Yeah. So I heard that like I said, that insulin resistance was at the root of PCOS. And then I started to kind of think like, do I have any symptoms of blood sugar issues? And if so, what are they? And I went back to old blood work that I had had um, the previous year and a half. And every time I went in for fasting blood work, my blood sugar, it was three different times. And each time my blood sugar was 60. And that is way below the the normal range, which I, the optimal range, which is 70 to 85, I like to say uh, milligrams per deciliter and having the blood sugar this low, I was super shaky. I was like, Oh, I hate fasting because it makes me feel so bad. I was really dizzy. I felt like I was so hangry. Like I would eat someone's arm off if it were in front of me. So I had this really intense hunger and I never fasted. And then I realized sometimes that happened to me after I would drink coffee. And so I got a glucometer and again, it was in the sixties. Then I also realized like I was that person who had a granola bar in my purse. I went, I ate before I went out to eat. So 
not, I didn't really have too many symptoms, but I sort of developed these habits to prevent symptoms from coming on. So I never could go that long without eating. And so I would always make sure I had food with me so that my blood sugar wouldn't go down. And then, um, yeah. And then there's lots of other issues, but that's really how I sort of found out what my issues were. Yeah. That's interesting. It's, it seems like sometimes with this type of stuff, there are some kind of band-aids you can throw at these things to kind of navigate them. And it, it kind of seems like that's maybe what your first attempt was where, you know, if I'm going to have these blood sugar dips, well, I've got that granola bar and when it dips, I'm going to have the granola bar and bring it back up. But that's kind of a, a circular type of situation because eventually you're probably going to be met with another crash. And then eventually you have to get around to like, well, what are the unforeseen consequences of, of targeting it like that? And it, it may be like, you know, being a, essentially a slave to food where you have to eat, it, it eats like, you know, so frequently that you're finding yourself essentially just snacking all day versus actually sitting down to full real meals, which I think would be a pretty big hurdle for most people when they're, if they're honest with themselves about just how they would want to navigate a day. And then, you know, you string together days after weeks, after months or years of that type of a lifestyle. And I, I would imagine that would become fatiguing. Totally. And you're, you really beautifully described the blood sugar roller coaster. And this is what many of us find that we are on. So we're eating carbohydrates because they're everywhere, because they're delicious, because it's convenient. And so we eat that our blood sugar goes up, the insulin gets released, puts all that blood sugar away and sometimes too much. And then, so our fuel starts going down and then we kind of have these like emergency lights come on in our body, some of us, and they, they sort of direct us towards food. So we can feel all different symptoms, like feeling lightheaded, shaky, irritable, anxious, tired, uh, weak, lethargic. Potentially some people get nauseous, they get sweats, heart palpitations, feeling really hangry, having tons of cravings, like urgent hunger. All those signs are signs that our blood sugar is really crashing. And then, so we go and get more carbohydrates, this easy fuel, and then our blood sugar spikes up again. And so we start the ride all over again. And so uh, unfortunately with, and what I'm describing too, is also um, reactive hypoglycemia when you eat a meal and your blood sugar crashes. So this hypoglycemia, the doctors will say that they, I'm sorry for the cat. Um, <laughs> doctors will say that um, yeah, the treatment for this is to eat every so often it's to eat more frequently. And like you said, this is only exacerbating the root cause. It's a bandaid approach, but it's not, it's like taking, um, you know, if there's a hole in a boat and you take a cup and dump some of the water out, yes, it's going to help in the moment, but it's not fixing the root cause and it's actually exacerbating it. So the more spikes we have, the worse it's going to get. Yeah. And I definitely want to, just, I, I, I have been so disappointed with, you know, I'm a traditionally trained dietitian, how that's kind of like you described, Danny, how not only doctors, but how dietitians often treat nutrition is we want, you know, we tell people you need to eat frequently, you need to eat, you know, four or five, six, I mean, sometimes eight times a day. And so what happens, like you said, we're basically, I feel like we're setting people up to continue on this blood sugar roller coaster. And like you also said, most people don't start, you know, with um, diabetes, but it's just, and you can even be very lean. You can be lean and you can have, yes. you know, those sweats, those symptoms of, you know, anxiety. I know for so much of my life, like if I went for more than two or three hours without eating, I was literally, if I was driving, I'd have to like pull over to a 7-Eleven and get a granola bar. Like the human body was not designed to function like that. 
but we are actually setting people up to have, you know, diabetes, to have anxiety, to have kidney failure, um, with this, this way that we're prescribing, um, you know, this nutrition prescription. And it's incredibly frustrating to me. Um, so I guess, yeah, would be like, what, what do we do? Oh, and another thing I definitely want to say that I was taught as a dietitian that you cannot reverse BCOS. It is not reversible. It can only be managed and you're going to need prescription medication. So I'd love your thoughts on that. <laughs> I have a feeling you have some thoughts on that. So I get so upset when people tell me that I didn't reverse my PCOS. I'm like, well, I have zero symptoms of it. So I don't like what, (laughs) of course it's reversible. And I did it, you know, and same thing with type two diabetes. There's people reversing type two diabetes and they'll say, some people will say that that's not reversible either. And that's definitely not the case. Um, You don't need to be on prescriptions for the rest of your life. I was on prescriptions and, you know, there's no knocking someone who's needing those prescriptions as sort of something to hold them over, something to help them while they start working on the root cause. And I hate this, like this word that's used in mainstream medicine, which is manage, like what the heck is managing a symptom? Like, I don't want to manage anything. Don't you want to reverse them? It's just, I like to give people hope that is totally possible. I've helped dozens of people reverse all sorts of blood sugar related issues. And it's very, very possible. Um, Maybe, I don't know. I'm not giving people false hope. I'm just saying that it's possible. (laughs) Well, the interesting thing about that particular topic is I think this just runs parallel with, like you said, like the type two diabetes question where, uh, you know, some of the pushback, I think you see the, the low carb group get when they're managing their type two diabetes with, uh, with, with, a, with a dietary intervention. And then the follow up question or the pushback is oftentimes, well, if you return to a moderate to high carbohydrate or, you know, a food pyramids, you know, standard American diet style of eating, does your type two diabetes return? And if so, then you didn't fix it. And then I just feel like that's looking through it. It's looking at it through one lens as if that is the only dietary pattern that we as humans should ever consider doing. And it's like, I think it, it's a pattern that some folks will like and enjoy and find success with. But to me, I think anytime we find ourselves in a situation where we're saying, this is the way humans are designed to eat. Therefore, if you fall outside of that, you're managing your, your dysfunction essentially then you, that, you know, it's, it's just, I think it's mislabeling to a degree. And like, I always look at this through an education lens because I used to be a teacher. So that's kind of my bias. And, you know, when I was teaching, especially with my students who had special needs, if they had a way to learn something that was different than the standard protocol, I wouldn't go to them and say, Hey, you're managing your, your learning process because you're incapable or inefficient or somehow broken. I would tell them that, look, you found a way to learn this that meets your learning needs and your learning needs just happen to differ than some of the regular ed students. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day, if you're able to you know, produce the end result that we're looking for. And I think I, I see that kind of in the same ways. I'm, I'm sure there's holes you can poke in that, but it's like, that's just, that's where I've kind of gotten to with this type of stuff along dietary things is like, why are we looking at this through one lens as everyone should be doing it one way why don't we look at it as here's some potential applications. There's, there's maybe some trade-offs, but if we look at these trade-offs practically and decide for you at the individual level, do the positives outweigh the negatives, then that may be the path forward for you, even though it may not be for someone else. 
Yeah, I love that you said that, Zach. Um, first of all, I used to be a pediatric speech pathologist, so I also worked um, with that um, special education population. Yeah. And that's so great that we have a similar background. Um, but yeah, I totally agree. I, I would say that if some if a particular style of eating is causing you to be sick, why would you want to go back to that exact same thing? So, um, but I will say also like, but if someone's smoking cigarettes and then they get cancer and then they stop smoking cigarettes, it's like, well, if you were to start smoking again, you would probably still have cancer. Like, I don't know if that's similar, but it's just a strange concept. Like there are foods out there. That's kind of sort of assuming that all foods are good for us. All foods are actually food. And most of the food out there is processed garbage that humans were not evolved to even be able to tolerate. And these foods are so inflammatory that they are going to cause problems no matter like what the shade of problem is. We all have our individual sort of genetic tendencies towards certain illnesses. So when I eat something wrong, I don't get a stomach ache. I'll get really fatigued or I will get sinus infections or something like that. So it shows up for me in my immune system. Other people, it shows up as migraines or cancer or different areas. So everyone's going to have these different manifestations of things. We need to get to the root cause and allow the body to find healing. But I will say that people will probably say, well, Danny, if you did keto and intermittent fasting uh, along with other things to reverse your PCOS, um, I will say that I have added back in carbohydrates and I eat carbs almost every single day, but I have metabolic flexibility and I don't eat carbohydrates for the most part that are garbage. I eat healthier ones like sweet potatoes and fruits and things like that. Yes. Occasionally I'll have ice cream or cold stone because you know, YOLO, but I just, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, eat those things. And my PCOS has not returned. My blood sugar is just as good. I'm metabolically flexible. And I feel like I have put myself in a situation where I don't eat exactly the same because I know what I know. And I know that my way of eating was too much for my body. So I've learned to adapt that, but I've also added back in some of those things. So I'm not so restricted anymore. And I'm still really healthy and I feel better than I ever have. So I think that that is maybe a little bit helpful to some of those naysayers who say that like, oh, if you ever have a carb again, it's going to be bad. Well, luckily it's, it hasn't been in my, yeah. Experience. You know, it's interesting. I actually got a couple of messages. I, I get quite a few messages with this question, Zach, and I really appreciate it. Zach and I have talked a lot offline and Danny, I really appreciate it. I know you validate this too, that I think we sometimes in the you know, various nutrition communities can get like really dogmatic and it's never the goal to be like, this is the only way, absolutely, you know, and we see that sometimes in different nutrition communities, but you made a really great point. Like context is important. If you're very sick, you know, and I know when I first started my health journey, I mean, you know, back in 2019, when I thought I was going to have to give up running and I was just, I was eating 450 grams of carbs a day and I was anxious and I was sweating and I was, you know, sick and hurting. Um, I needed to go I went, you know, completely 30 days of zero carbs. And, you know, you could, once again, you could say like, oh, that's terrible. That's exactly what I needed. My body needed meat and fat. And, you know, as I've gone on, we're over a year out. And as I'm a, you know, Zach and I are ultra runners, I have added carbohydrates back in. And I'm, you know, and now I'm metabolically flexible. I don't get those dips. I sleep amazing. I don't suffer anxiety, but what it took, it took getting to the root cause. It took eliminating everything. It took slowly adding things back in and then figuring out, you know what, I actually feel awful when I eat this. Actually, I feel really good when I eat this. 
And then, you know, people will message me and say, I'm so I'm scared to have parts because I don't want to feel like I did a year ago. But it's not, you know, once you get metabolically healthy, it's not kind of an all or nothing thing. There is room for flexibility. And I think that's why it can be so helpful to, you know, to work with somebody like you because we need to go, we need to get our health back first. You know, I think sometimes people are thinking, um, I have people sometimes ask me about like, how do you recover from running? How do you recover from running? I'm like, well, figure it, let's go run first. (laughs) Let's get, (laughs) you know, like, let's not worry about, you know, recovering until you actually get out there. Like, you you know, one step at a time. So it's like, let's get back to where we're at baseline. Um, and then let's talk about, because I don't think everybody needs to be zero carb or, you know, hundred percent keto or hundred percent carnivore all the time. But, you know, obviously I wrote the book because I just saw so much sickness and so much illness. And I think we need to get back to kind of that baseline. Like, let's figure out how to eat like a healthy human. And I also absolutely agree. I mean, I do think there's some things out there that, a lot of that, what we eat is garbage, you know, a lot of those cookies, crackers. I mean, you, you just walk down the grocery store or look in someone's cart, you know, there's a lot of processed things. And I, am I saying you can never have processed food ever? Absolutely not. You know, unless you obviously have it like a true sugar or carbohydrate addiction, but in general, I think just kind of, like you said, getting back to baseline, figuring out what is that root cause. And then once you're, you have more metabolic flexibility, then you can kind of titrate out from there. Like, well, what is my daily carbs going to be? Am I going to have carbs? Am I not going to have carbs? So yeah. What do you think about that, Danny? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that, you know, there is a, I think it's a harmful sort of movement in the dietitian community. And I don't mean to call them out by like, it's other people too, but it's more in the, maybe, um, what is that? The, it, it's, the message is, <laughs> that there's no such thing as a bad food. And I don't think that's true. I think that's harmful information. And maybe that's helpful for some people for their like binge eating recovery or eating disorder recovery. Um, And I'm not knocking something that works for people, but I do think that that message sort of overall is pretty harmful because there are foods that are very damaging. And we know that as people who have taken foods out of our diet, achieved healing, and then tried to add those foods back in and had a really adverse reactions to them. And I think that that, uh, like along the point of what you were trying to say, Michelle, is that once you cut out certain foods and your body does find a happier balance and more homeostasis and more healing, that's when you'll start to notice what foods are actually causing you to have issues. So people who are eating just regularly, whatever they normally eat, standard American diet or sort of anything, it's hard to pick out foods that are causing problems because our bodies are so good at adapting. They're almost too good at adapting that they just adapt to what's going on. And so you don't react every single time you have them. And so that's why when you do sort of do an elimination diet or kind of clean out, get rebalanced, that's when you'll be able to add a food back in and really notice the difference that it makes. So you can make the decision, like, do I want to keep eating this thing or do I want to leave it out? And so um, it's, it's very empowering to do that. Yeah. And I think sometimes with this, with this type of stuff, especially when we're looking at foods kind of wholesale is just like including the food environment and then your own personality. Because when I think of it, like there's, uh, I mean, just take like a soft drink, for example, like if I'm out doing a, like a two hour run and I have six ounces of Coca-Cola, like an hour and 30 minutes into that, it's probably not going to do any damage to me. In fact, it may actually aid my run. But, you know, my wife and I were actually joking around about this because we went into a gas station last week and, you know, they have like the fountain drink thing set up 
And some of those cups are so massive. We're like, when does it turn from a cup to becoming a bucket? <laughs> it's like, What's that line? You know? right, yeah, well, well, how many ounces crosses over from cup to bucket? And, and, and then I started thinking about that. I was like, you know what? I mean, are there people out there who can walk in and say, you know what? Eight ounces of that is fine. It's not going to do too much damage. Give me a little pick me up. You know, I, I probably won't have it again for a few days and they're no worse for the wear. But then there are people who will go in there and they'll look at that and they'll say, hey, I want the biggest one. I'm going to fill it up all the way and I'll have this finished before the afternoon. And like that is a problem. And it's like you can't necessarily expect or I shouldn't say expect, but you can't necessarily just like kind of universally prescribe something and expect people to behave the same way around it, from my experience. So that's why when I look at some of these, you know, quote unquote diet trends or um, fad diets, like if you want to have a less charitable uh, definition, I guess is, is like, well, I mean, maybe, maybe they're a fad diet for 90% of the population, but if that particular dietary pattern is sustainable for 10% of the people who do it, and they find a way of eating that helps them find, you know, health and energy and all the, or someone like yourself, like, you know, enjoying life versus, you know, finding all these different band-aids to throw at things in order to get through your day, then it's like, why should I knock them for, for finding that, that one area that works for them? Yeah. I think one of the things that we're taught in nutritional therapy school is there's a really big emphasis on bioindividuality. And I think that so many things in nutrition, we try to distill information or like say that this worked for me and this can work for you for the same problem. But that's why I don't subscribe. I don't teach the keto diet. I teach like, okay, here you can get into ketosis. Here's real food. Here's carnivore. Here's whatever. Here's like no labels because everyone's going to need something different. And then kind of going back to what Michelle was saying earlier, that doing the same thing over and over and over again is never going to be good for our bodies. So being in ketosis hundred percent of the time, all the time, not that good for you. Our bodies need to kind of experience variation. And so this is kind of thinking back to more ancestral times, there would be variety. So in the summer, there's like a berry bush and, you know, they'd go and gorge themselves on berries or find a honeycomb or something. And then there'd be periods where there's no food. And so they'd have to be fasting and in ketosis. And so we, the, the sameness and kind of holding on to something that worked at one point and not being flexible or non-dogmatic enough to kind of let it go and look outside of that paradigm for your answers can really keep a lot of people stuck. And that happened with me. It happened when I went paleo, I found all that healing from paleo and then started to develop insulin resistance and PCOS while doing eating all real food. But I, I couldn't look outside of the scope. I'm like, I know that real food is healthy. And so I'm just going to keep eating this way. Like I couldn't, I couldn't change anything because I just believed in it too much. And sometimes that's a little dangerous. So finally I was realizing like, oh, my paleo diet includes tons of like plantains, plantain chips, um, kombucha, sweet potatoes, honey, like keto, uh, paleo treats, like all different things, maple syrup, honey in every recipe, coconut sugar. And I was like, oh, I'm still addicted to sugar. Like that didn't go away. And so it was helpful for me to take that out, but then I'm able to sort of put it back in now and again. And that is like the variety that I kind of go into in the summertime. I lean more into more carbohydrates in the wintertime, more into like bone broth and more carnivore types. So keeping that variety, I think is really healthy. And then, yeah, that bioindividuality, super important. 
That's amazing. And I really appreciate that because I do think like when something works, especially if you've been really sick, like it's, it's hard. Like you, you find something that works and you get really excited about it. I know when I was, you know, pure carnivore and really low carb for a while, I wanted, you know, okay, under 25 grams of carbs. And I just felt great. But then I found that like, man, I'm getting really fatigued and flat on my runs or even my longer runs. And so it was like being able to be okay with like, okay, well, I, I remember you have these like flashbacks of how awful you felt with, you know, carbohydrates, but you have to be open enough to be like, okay, well, let, let's try this. Like you said, like, and I, I agree with you. I don't necessarily think our bodies were always meant to um, do the same thing. And unfortunately now um, most people eat, you know, four or five, six, seven times every single day. Our pancreas was not meant to secrete insulin, you know, hence we're seeing all kinds of health problems. But when we're, you know, when we're, um, more flexible to do that. Say, well, I'm going to have more carbohydrates this day. Maybe the next day I don't, maybe you do carb cycling. Like you said, maybe you do seasonal because we do know that, yeah, people tended to eat more when the weather was better in the summer, certainly if you live close to the equator and then in the winter, maybe you do more fasting, you do more meat, you do more bone broth. Um, I think that just kind of, kind of sets you up for health. Right. So I really, I appreciate that approach and I do appreciate being it's hard, you know, but always kind of keeping your mind open to being kind of like cyclic and changing. But I do also think there is that foundation. I think when we get further away from that, actually foundation of what humans were supposed to eat um, and start moving more towards that, like processed food, I think, you know, I think pretty much all people can, can agree, but I don't know, like you were saying with dietitians, you know, dietitian, the, the board of dietitians and I'm, you guys, I'm a registered, still registered dietitian, but the governing board is sponsored by like Frito-Lay and Pepsi and stuff. So don't know if uh <laughs> their advice is always going to be the 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 best and not have any conflicts of interest the dietitian's dilemma podcast series is made possible by our friends at s fuels s fuels is both michelle and my workout recovery and lifestyle product of choice they don't leave our carb craving friends hanging but make sure they stay true to their roots by boasting a wide range of low carbohydrate products to help anyone make low carb living and performance much easier. Personally, I like to lean on their S Fuels Life Mix and Revive in my morning coffee just to give me a little bit of extra fat fuel and protein to start the day. Their Life Bars I'll turn to when I need a protein packed snack on those higher energy demanding days. Their S Fuels Train product when I need a bit of extra fat for a long workout and their Race Plus to help keep liver and muscle glycogen topped off on my harder, longer efforts. You can check out their full lineup at sfuelsgolonger.com. That is S-F-U-E-L-S-G-O-L-O-N-G-E-R.com and enter promo code ZACHB5, that is all caps, Z-A-C-H-B, the number five, for 5% off your next order. Thanks for tuning in, and now back to the show. Yeah, I think one of the one of the issues with just kind of the phrasing around like the dietitian's like approach of kind of everything in moderation is perhaps maybe a little bit of a mislabeling to a degree from what I see anyway in the sense that like everything in moderation could be right if like you're also working within the parameters of your lifestyle and your own individual needs and having moderate amounts of the things that are going to work well for you. I think just the food environment now is so complex in terms of the options we have. Everything in moderation could easily be a massive amount of, uh, of extra things that turn up to be more than moderation because of the combination of them. So like, 
if I have like, oh, maybe I'll just have like that fun size Snickers bar. Maybe I'll just have that eight ounce glass of soda, or maybe I'll, you know, at the end of the day, like moderation can add up to extreme surplus because of the amount of options we have. So I do think there's value in thinking of things in moderation, or at least thinking of them in terms of individual needs. Obviously there's going to be a big difference between say someone like Michelle or myself, who's training for an ultra marathon in terms of the energy requirements we have, you know, versus someone who, you know, maybe a sedentary for whatever reason, or someone who take, let's say Michelle or I get injured and we are stuck on the couch for six weeks, you know, our, our energy needs are going to drastically change for those six weeks. And we're going to have to adapt within that framework in order to, uh, you know, stay healthy. So like, I think everything in moderation is kind of half the story and would maybe work well in a food environment that wasn't as kind of cluttered, but since it is, it almost has to be like in moderation with the mindset of what foods are you personally going to have a problem keeping in moderation or what groups are actually the same essentially. And that a little bit of moderation with everything in that group is going to turn into a mass surplus in the wrong direction. Then we're starting to get maybe a little closer to what would be, I guess, maybe a universal truth or closer to a universal truth, which I think is pretty hard to find in nutrition these days. Yeah. I think, Oh, sorry, Michelle. Oh no, I was just, I was just going to piggyback on that and say, you know, and I, I, if, if moderation, the problem, my biggest problem with moderation is it doesn't have any actual definition. And from what I've seen in the hospital setting that most of my patients, you know, by the time I see patients in the hospital, right. You know, I, I no longer practice in the hospital when I did, they are so sick. I'm not seeing Mary who's 10 pounds overweight. I'm seeing Mary who's 48, who's been type two diabetic for 10 years. Who's about to have her leg chopped off. Who's has sarcopenia. Um, to her moderation means that I have a banana in the morning, two cookies in the afternoon. I sneak out when my husband's not looking like they moderate, like, you know, I think like when we give somebody a prescription for antibiotics, let's say have a science infection, I don't say, okay, take these pills in moderation. I say you have two pills twice a day and then you're done. You know, humans, one, one, most people, especially if you're in crisis, like if you're our, our, our nutrition our, as humans, we're in crisis. Diabetes is in crisis. Depression leads the world in disability. Um, obesity is off the charts. Kidney failure, dialysis is off the charts. We, nobody says, oh, I'm in a crisis. Challenge me or give me something abstract. You know, we need more data. <laughs> so then we also tell people like, you can't moderate processed carbohydrates. You can't moderate these foods. They're, they're designed to override your brain, right? So I think that that is my biggest issue with just the concept of moderation. Um, and then, but yeah, Zach, I also agree with you that like, you know, I was talking with another um, MD the other day and he said, you know, if we just told people like, if you could truly like, Hey, you know what, have a piece of cake on your birthday and on Christmas, like everyone would be fine and healthy. But to most people, moderation is I'm having some type of sugar or carbohydrate um, several times a day on top of what I already think is a healthy carbohydrate, cereals, yogurts, fruit, and whatever. So we get, we end up with people that are just massively sick and overweight and anxious and I'm going to say one more thing, Danny, and then I'm going to let you talk. Sorry. This just popped oh, no. in my head. But I had a, you know, I had somebody I had a dietitian message me and say that, um, she thought the message of not allowing all foods to fit was very dangerous. She said, well, I had a, I was talking with someone struggling with an eating disorder and I told them you need to eliminate sugar. And they became so upset over that. They ended up going and binging on sugar. And I, my, my response to her was, well, I, I hear you and I validate that. But if you have an alcoholic and you tell them, look, you need to give up alcohol, 
and they go binge on alcohol. It's not, that problem isn't the alcohol. The problem is the lack of the, you know, emotional management skill and coping skill. Right. So, um, that's all I'll, I'll let you <laughs> get on my soapbox for a minute. Zach, I do that every time when you talk on this. <laughs> That's good. That's I, I mean, you said so many of the things I wanted to say about how moderation is not um, like, what the heck does that even mean? So I love that the example with the antibiotics, that's hysterical. Like, yeah, what, what really is moderation? And I find that a lot of people, there are some people that exist. And I would say these are more the exception, not the rule that people can, you know, eat a little bit. And my mother is kind of coming to mind. She's always like eaten a little bit and then been able to stop. But what people are really able to stop eating these processed carbohydrates, like you said, that are made in a factory to be hyper palatable and so addictive. And so we're, we're not talking about actual food. People are not binge eating steak and salad. They're binge eating processed carbohydrates. And so the, and then if you take those away, sometimes it could be like nuts or something, you know, because there's still that like same sort of behavior, but these, the real food, you know, we can't, it's not like eggs and butter that people are really overeating. And so we look at the foods that they're overeating and they are these really processed carbohydrates and what's kind of going on here. We're not able to moderate that just as someone who's addicted to alcohol is not able to moderate. So when we have either an addiction to sugar or some sort of like binge eating disorder or emotional eating issues, we completely lose this ability to moderate. And also people who have blood sugar dysregulation have an extremely hard time like moderating at all because their blood sugar keeps crashing and they're running out of fuel. People with insulin resistance, people with diabetes, the insulin resistance is actually blocking all of that sugar, which is fuel from getting into the cell. So people are starving but they have sugar all over their body, which is fuel, but they have no access to it. And so they continue to eat and eat and eat. So you can't tell someone like that, that moderation is okay. We need to work on fixing the underlying causes of those issues, why your cells are starving from like a cellular level. And so this kind of, I I remember my own issue, my own sort of stories with moderation versus abstaining that I always knew that like, once the bag was open, it was going to be finished. I had an issue with chocolate chips, dark chocolate chips. Like I would eat the whole bag. I had an issue with a frosting. Like I used to be a closet eater, binge eater. I had a sugar dragon that was like, eat everything. And I couldn't stop. I just like, couldn't stop myself. And finally, after I did this healing journey, I can actually walk past chocolate. I can have a bite of something and leave it. And so a lot of times it's the um, the environment of what's going on in your body. There are physiological reasons. I mean, having it, an imbalance of our good and bad gut bacteria, having candida overgrowth, these things, we're a hundred times something more bacterial cells than we are human cells in our body. So if your bacteria are all crying for sugar, who's going to win a hundred to one, they're going to win. They're going to win every time. And so they're causing you to continue to have these behaviors and you think, Oh, my willpower, I can't do it. It's not necessarily you. It could be your physiology taking over. And then of course there's that whole emotional piece. And so we've been, you know, every single holiday, every birthday we get, we get sugar. How many people were pacified with sugar as a child or rewarded with sugar. And so we have these 
connections with sugar that are just, oh, this is going to make me feel good. And we can't break that. And so for anyone who's sort of struggling with this, it's kind of like, I hope that you can sort of take the blame off of yourself and see that the food companies are against you. And like all the marketing out there, the ease of getting all of these foods are setting you up for failure. And this is how the system was designed. So to go against this, it's, it's a radical idea. And of course the food companies who pay for who sponsor the dietitian like programs in this country, of course they want to say moderation because in their little scheme, moderation is perfect because at least you can have an eight ounce Coca-Cola instead of a 16 ounce and it still fits. But this is blocking people from healing because they need to take these addictive substances out of their diet. We need to really stop looking at these things like food for the vast majority of the population. And, you know, there are some, of course, exceptions to that, but someone who's working a desk job and not running an ultra marathon, like I take two walks a day and sometimes lift weights. Like I do not need to eat the same amount that you guys do. (laughs) Like it's going to be totally different. And so if I were to eat like you were, were doing, it would not go well for me. So everyone needs to, you know, kind of see where they're at and take a hard look at it. But getting off the processed food is a radical act of (laughs) self-love. One interesting thing I think about you, Danny, and I'm definitely going to reach well into the side of speculation on this part, but like you brought up kind of like the, 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 the gut bacteria and that sort of stuff. And it's, uh, I think, obviously that's a field that's semi in its, its infancy. And I'm sure we've got tons to learn and hopefully will in terms of answering some of these questions that we've probably brought up today. And one thing that I find interesting is like your particular trend line where like when you first recognized there was a mistake, you kind of had to go cold Turkey for a while. And then now that you've kind of, you, you kind of got through that, you did what I guess you'd call like a reset and now you can kind of introduce some of those stuff. I wonder if uh, some of that was just, you kind of almost reprogrammed some of those gut bacteria in your digestive system. So now it's like, yeah, you have a little bit of that stuff here and there. So it's not going to like completely overtake that. And you're not going to have that quote unquote second brain screaming out for it nonstop. If you have like you know, one piece of, of fruit or something like that like it may have in the past when your gut bacteria was set up to really, really prefer that. Um, whether I, I guess think. that bears <laughs> true is, is anyone's guess at this point, probably, but uh, it's an interesting kind of thought wavelength with that where, where, cause I think some people are thinking and maybe, maybe it, well, it likely is true for some folks where they just have to kind of completely remove certain things. Cause it's just, either a psychological trigger or something like that for them personally. But on average, I would think like, yeah, if you can like reprogram what the gut bacteria are asking for, then yeah, maybe you can, you know, throw a few things in there every once in a while, as long as it doesn't become the foundation of your diet. So it's not so much reprogramming as it is that certain bacteria like candida, for example, which is a yeast, um, candida feed on sugar. And so if you don't feed the candida, they, they die, they die off. And so then they stop screaming for things like that. So it is, yes, I, it, it can also maybe help to kind of reprogram your brain because you're not getting that message from the second brain kind of going up. So it kind of breaks that habit for you, but yeah, it is a a huge shift in the actual numbers of these gut bacteria, which are kind of demanding different things from you. So yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, it's interesting stuff. It'll be it'll be interesting where we get with that research and if they start getting more answers around that topic and or I guess more definitive answers. I think it'll there's a lot of interesting avenues, I think, with nutrition. I you know, I I I legitimately like don't envy a nutrition research scientist because essentially you're dealing with just such a host of uncontrollable variables when you start to introduce things into the real world outside of the laboratory that there's really no clear direct answers. And what that ends up getting, I think anyone with a PhD behind their name is a lot of criticism. <laughs> so, so it, it, you know, it's just, a, it's kind of a, a messy area to, to dabble in, especially if you're going to be kind of publicly vocal about it. But, uh, you know, hopefully we, we get, we get a little further along at some point. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. Uh, Michelle, I don't want to completely control the conversation. <laughs> so if you got any topics you want to bring yeah, up. Yeah, well, I definitely want to, um, you know, I had another thought specifically. I was just, I was thinking about when, you know, we were talking about, you know, root causes and I was thinking about, you know, in my story and how, you know, I was eating so many carbohydrates. And when I was struggling, you know, I actually reached out to two sports dietitians and they both told me the same thing that I needed even more carbohydrates. And so I feel like it's really a shame, you know, and I don't think, you know, every health professional I've ever talked to, and I've said this before, like genuinely wants to help people, but I feel like our education is so biased, you know, cause it is sponsored by all those processed foods. And I feel like, unfortunately, I see this in the dietetic community. You know, I've been a dietitian for 11 years and our rates of sickness and diabetes and depression continue to go up and up and up. Yet we're not changing what we're doing. We're not like, you know, and when I started to get really interested and excited and I restored my health with the low carb, high fat diet, um, I wanted to teach it. I wanted to talk about it. And I was immediately told, you know, you can't. And we talked with Dr. Palmer a little bit about this, that, you know, hospitals can literally be shut down if you don't follow the standard protocols. So it's almost like it, it's really set up, set up for the patient to fail. So I hope, you know, anybody who's listening to this, who struggled in the past, like, like Danny was saying, I hope you can like take the blame off yourself, like between the processed food companies, you know, dietitian education between pharmaceuticals, like this isn't your fault if you ended up on like a, a rough path, you know, I mean, like I'm a dietitian and I might completely lost my own health. So, you know, I really hope that people, you know, find these messages like hopeful and inspiring and like, wow, you can take your health back. So I think that's really cool. And I wanted to like transition into things a little bit beyond nutrition, because this is something we never talked about as dietitians. You know, you kind of like know, like, oh, well, sleep and stress and stuff can have a really big impact on, how, you know, maybe like how you digest food or how your body, like, you know, maybe potentially the release of cortisol or, you know, how your blood sugar reacts. But um, yeah, Danny, I, you know, you and I have talked offline, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about like, you know, the parasympathetic nervous system and how important it is, like even after activity to calm down or not to, you know, be eating while you're driving. Just like, why is that important? Yeah. So these go back to the root causes that we learned in nutritional therapy school, which isn't sponsored by anything um, that I know of. <laughs> um, and so it's a really holistic school and I love their approach. And so one of the things that we learn in school is the real importance of being in this parasympathetic nervous system state. So our, the state of our autonomic nervous system, which controls actions that we are not thinking about, like breathing and digestion and all that kind of stuff they are all happening either in the parasympathetic state, which is rest and digest, or in the sympathetic state, which is fight or flight. So when we are in a fight or flight state, the body actually stops 
things like digestion. So it stops producing saliva, stomach acid, you ever like you're going to give a talk and your mouth is like totally dry, um, <laughs> you know, and um, it, it stops digestion, it stops um, peristalsis. So it stops moving things in, in the intestines. It stops fertility. The body is always going to prioritize survival over procreation. So uh, people who have messed up hormones, I mean, this goes really far because the stress is actually stealing these precursor hormones to make them into cortisol. So these, th these precursor hormones could be turned into progesterone or estrogen or testosterone to help us balance our female and male sex hormones. But instead they're being captured and being converted into cortisol so we can survive because our body is perceiving threats everywhere. And so um, this is really important because our body also, it, like I said, it doesn't digest in this in this state. It doesn't have proper reproductive and hormonal function in this state. It doesn't balance our blood sugar well in this state. It actually produces lots of blood sugar because if our body thinks that we're being chased by a tiger, it's going to liberate a ton of glucose, which is fuel. So we can get away. It's going to pump like, um, all this blood to the muscles, dilate our pupils so we can run and escape. We can fight or we can flight. Right. And so flee, whatever. Um, <laughs> and then, um, on, on the other hand, if we get into this parasympathetic state, that's where all the healing happens. That's where the magic happens. That's where we can regulate our hormones. We can uh, balance our blood sugar, we can detoxify, we can digest. And so without getting into this state, we are really be people being stuck in this chronic low grade stressed state is such a problem because it messes up all sorts of things. And you're like, there's just something wrong with me. There's so many things wrong with me and you can't figure it out. And there's so many things that can cause stress too, right? Not only like the pandemic and politics and, you know, um, husbands and wives and things like that, but things like low level infections, things like having your blood sugar be too high or, um, holding, we, we hold our breath a lot. We don't, breathe properly um, and not giving ourselves those times off. I, I always say to my clients, like, I need you to practice as hard as you're working at changing your diet and eating well. I want you to work just as hard at relaxing because we're up, we're doing things. We're scrolling through our phones. That's not relaxing. Um, we're, you know, <laughs> like going through our day, like in traffic, um, you know, talking on the phone and zoom conference and, and like picking up the kids and we are just constantly doing. And so we need to get back into a state of being in order for things to sort of balance out. And so one of the biggest tools that I give my clients, and I gave you this one, Michelle, is the four, seven, eight breath. And so I'll just give you this little nugget. Um, so you can do it if you wake up in the middle of the night, if you're stressed, if whenever you remember. Um, so the four, seven, eight breath is you inhale for four, you hold for seven, and you exhale for eight. You always want to inhale through your nose. Um, you can exhale through the nose or mouth. Either way is fine. Um, and this actually, I, I wore a, a device that measures my heart rate variability, which I'm sure your followers are pretty familiar with on the show, Zach, would you say? Yeah. I know HRV. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I wore a device called Get Leaf and I was watching my HRV on my phone and I started doing the four, seven, eight breath. And I just watched it go up and up and up and up. And it was amazing. It was so cool. And so just knowing that, like, I'm a kind of like a numbers gal. So I like to know that there's like actual, you know, things improving if I'm going to sit and take my time and do this. Cause I'm very type a, and I need to take my own advice because I'm very much a human doing, <laughs> not a human being. So I try 
to, um, you know, even if you're someone who's like, I want to meditate me literally, um, but I can't do it. Like my mind is everywhere. Do the breath work, you know, use this as a tool before you eat that will help you digest better. Um, before you sleep, it will help you sleep better. So these things are hugely important for healing. And especially even after we, Michelle and I talked about after a run, after you work out, your body is in a stress state. And so being in a stress state isn't necessarily bad. It's when we're not out of that stress state, right? The body, this hormetic stress, like these beneficial stressors are very important for our body to adapt and get stronger, but then we need to come out of that state. So that's why I say to a lot of people, just if you've ever taken a yoga class, like take a Shavasana at the end of your workout, no matter what it is, even if it's, you know, yoga or not yoga, like after your run, come in and just lay on the floor, just breathe and get your body out of that stress state. And then you'll find like, oh, I, I'm actually hungry now. So a lot of people tell me, oh, I can't eat right after a workout. Of course you can't because your body's in a stress state. You're not going to feel hunger. So then if you do force yourself to eat, you're just not going to digest well. That's why everybody eats like drinks, shakes and things right after they work out because they can't really digest that well. So make sure you just do a few rounds of that breathing. And then you'll start to notice like, oh, I actually feel hungry. And then you can go eat. So just a little tip for, uh, for some healing. Yeah, that's a really interesting topic. I think one thing I recognized when I was wearing a CGM and I, I, I kind of knew it intuitively beforehand because I'd have these situations where I'd have like a really big training like schedule. So one thing I recognized within that context, if I want to really pull that lever where I'm going to put the pedal down in training to a significant amount more than what I would just be doing normally to kind of peak for a race, I'm going to take on more stress and I'm going to have to recover from that. And the way to do that optimally is to remove some of the stress from other areas. I have to create that bandwidth for it. So like, I mean, I learned this the hard way through a few examples, but like, you know, you, you have, if you have like your other op, whether it be relationship stress, whether it be work stress, you know, any stress for that matter is going to add to that kind of that bucket of, uh, you know, stress load you're taking on. So if I want to add to that bucket from one area of my life, I have to be willing to take away from some other area if I want it to go well or want to have that, that recovery actually be there. And I think where we oftentimes run into problems with this is we look at that stress recovery, stress recovery stimulus, which like you said, is great. That's how you get stronger. That's how you get more robust. That's how you put yourself in a position to be very good at tolerating something. But if you're looking at it through one window, which like I was through training, you can miss, you can miss where you, maybe you're doing everything perfect from a workout recovery schedule. Maybe everything is all lined up on that, but you introduced a new stress or didn't reduce another stress from a different area of life while you did that. And that's, what's actually slowing down the progress or sending you backwards versus forwards. And once you start looking at it more holistically, I think is when you can kind of start recognizing just where that balance is in, in everyone's kind of specific situation in life. Yeah. That's so important. That's really, really good to kind of consider the other stressors too. And then there's also those hidden ones that are kind of hard to find like mm -hmm. chemicals in our environment, you know? So sometimes there's, there might be something going on that we can't control. Not what that's when it can get really tricky, but I do like looking at the things that are sort of on your plate and you know, that, that happens for people who are just making a new lifestyle. It's like, I, I can't cook all my food from home. It's like something has to give, you know, like mm -hmm. what can you take away so that this can happen? And so I like that sort of objective looking at, at your life like that, that zoom out. 
Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely complicates things too, because it's like at that point too, then I have to ask myself sometimes, well, I made this change and I got this response and it's like, did I, you know, what variables am I not considering that I could have maybe also manipulated that could potentially have resulted in that? And I mean, at the end of the day, you have to find something that's going to be sustainable for you. And, you know, I think our, our bodies do do a pretty good job of letting us know, like when we're over fatigued, when we're, you know, not optimal, so to speak. And the more you can give yourself the opportunity to find those states where you feel great, those could be really great kind of points of interest, I think, in terms of guiding you in terms of like, well, what did I do to get that feeling? It's at that point, it's almost irrelevant exactly what caused it as long as you have a proper mapping of kind of that procedure and you're able to replicate it and kind of stay in that state for longer. And you know, unfortunately, I guess sometimes that just takes a little bit of trial and error for people because everyone's going to have an individual set of circumstances. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, the breathing stuff, I feel like is really is really powerful. I was, um, I've always been a little skeptical. Um, you know, I, I totally validate the things like meditation and yoga are like good for people. Like I, I could totally get on board with that. But when it came to me actually sitting down and practicing it, I used to just think like, I just don't have time, you know, and I just like, like you, Danny, I'm just, I'm a human doing too, like constantly running from one project to the next, you know, working, doing various side hustles and stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, I actually found I was having some like nausea after running and I hadn't really experienced that before. I was like, well, what's going on? You know, I'm trying to, to run and then, you know, eat and go to work and all this stuff. And yeah, you had talked to me about the, the breathing. And at first I was like, uh, okay, you know, I'll give this a whirl. But I was really surprised. And I think kind of the nice thing about it is it doesn't have to take a long time. Like, it's not like you have to go, you know, sit in a closet for half an hour. Like I literally would come in and sit down, pat my dog and just for, you know, five minutes, you know, do the breathing. And I was really shocked, like, whoa, like you almost feel this sense of calm and it's almost like your body kind of resets. And I started doing it in the evening as well. And yeah, even my wife was just like, wow, you've done this every single night. Like, I'm so impressed. We've been talking about doing okay. something for decades and, you know, I might do it once or twice and then be like, meh, but it is a, it is something I would encourage people. Like you're having, you know, so if you work out in the morning, like to, even if you just, you know, start with a minute or two minutes of doing some of the sets of the breathing, you know, where you're breathing in for four, hold for seven, breathe out for eight, um, really, really powerful stuff. So I, I love that. I can't, I can't, uh say good, good enough things about that. I'm so glad it helped. Yeah. It, it is interesting. I think like, it, and everyone can probably find an opportunity to try it where just keep in the back of your mind, like, okay, next time I get like a little more excited than normal or some anxiety comes on for whatever reason, if you do stop and kind of just, I mean, this has been something that's been around. So I think it just almost became a meme versus actual, like, you know, something that, that, that works, even though it does, where it's like, you know, stop and take a breath. Like when someone gets excited and it's like, yeah, that's exactly what you should do. And it kind of brings you back. It recenters you. And uh, like, I couldn't tell you what's actually going on there. I'm, I'm assuming it's like, you know, you're lowering that, 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 that reaction, the parasympathetic. It's the vagus nerve. Um, so it, it stimulates the vagus nerve. So there's lots of ways to stimulate it, but the vagus nerve being stimulated will put your body into a parasympathetic state. There's other ways to get there. There's some essential oil blends, actually. Um, I just had someone on my podcast, Jody Cohen, about that. Um, and then there, you can gargle, you can sing, you can hum, uh, chanting, deep breathing. So uh, yoga, these are all ways to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system via the vagal nerve. So that's the science behind it. Is, is that another reason why like you can get like those sleep apps where they'll have like some sort of like white noise in the background that's kind of semi-calming like a light rain or something like that where it almost kind of puts you in this state of like 
more like calmness that you would get, I guess, if you're out in nature? Um, I don't think that's the vagus nerve to my knowledge. Um, but I think that something that is, so I know from talking with a friend who's a sleep specialist, Molly McLaughlin, she mentions that what you don't want to hear, like when you're going to sleep is something like where noises are abrupt and changing. So like if a loud air conditioner comes on every so often, like in my house, like that can <laughs> be something that can like wake you up. So either, but like the silence or just um, that like white noise, they say that white noise machines help for that reason. And I think it's maybe to drown out other things and just give your brain just like one kind of thing. And so it kind of tunes other stuff out. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but I, yeah. I'm not sure if it's vagal nerve. I wonder too, if that, if it's just something where it keeps things consistent. So like, yeah. you're like, if you're at home sleeping in your own bed, which is probably going to be the optimal state and you have that kind of whatever that white noise thing is in the background. And then you go somewhere else for a trip or something. And you have that, you kind of, you're at least replicating a portion of your, your typical routine that maybe helps kind of put you in that state a little bit better. Yeah. I love the way your brain thinks. It's so funny. It's so similar to mine. It's very like <laughs> analytical and scientific. <laughs> I love how you're always thinking like this, like I see your thought patterns and it <laughs> feels very familiar. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> awesome. Well, Danny, I don't want to take up too much of your time because you've been generous so far to kind of share your insights and things like that. But if there are topics you want to you want to share, we certainly can, but we do want to let, give you an opportunity to let our listeners know where they can find you. If you're active on social media, you have a website or somewhere that they can see what you're up to. Yeah, sure. So um, I love talking. I could do this all day. I, um, I have my own podcast called Unlock the Sugar Shackles, and it's all about blood sugar dysregulation and um, getting over those sugar hurdles and putting the sugar dragon to sleep. I don't really talk so much about sugar addiction on my podcast, but um, sort of balancing out the body so you don't have to work so hard and kind of white knuckle that, um, you know, abstaining from sugar. And I am also very active on Instagram. You can find me at Danielle Hamilton Health and my website's also daniellehamiltonhealth.com. Awesome. Michelle, did you have anything else you wanted to chat about? No, I think, uh, I think we covered pretty much everything. And, um, and Danny, are you taking clients right now? Can people reach out to you for coaching sessions or do you have anything coming up with that? Yep. Um, if you go onto my website there on the first page, you just scroll down and it says book a discovery call. So the way I work with people is we have a call and I talk about, you know, what their issues are. And I tell them about all the programs and packages that I offer. I have upcoming, um, group coaching programs. And I have an online program in the works for digestion, especially for um, low carb diets, because that's a big issue that a lot of people are experiencing. So um, yeah, lots of lots of ways to work with me for sure. Awesome. Very cool. And Michelle, where can folks find you? Oh, yeah. So I am on um, Instagram mostly at run, eat, meet, repeat. Um, on the, my Instagram, I have a link where you can buy the book, the book, The Dietitian's Dilemma. Uh, Danny is actually one of my testimonies in the book. So I'm super excited about that. And I am on Twitter at Michelle Hearn RD. And then my website is the dietitian's dilemma.net. Awesome. Well, thanks both of you for taking some time to come on HPO podcasts and share some of your insight. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Michelle. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at ZachBitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, 
at ZBitter on Twitter and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.